Hello everyone, you've just been listening to the song Danny Boy, set to the tune of Derry Air or London Derry Air. It's the unofficial anthem of Northern Ireland, and I give two names for the tune because, like many things in Northern Ireland, there are two very different perspectives. It can of course be a good thing to have different perspectives on issues in life, but the polarisation of these perspectives led to 30 years of violence in the North. My guest today is John Harding. John was born in Wales and lived much of his life in England before relocating to Ireland around 20 years ago. He was a priest and creative writer who became involved in running peace and reconciliation groups in the North. John was visiting and I took the opportunity to ask him what that work was like in a place that's so polarised and has suffered so much trauma. Previous guest Rob Blake was also visiting, and you will hear him chip in with a question at the end. So here's John explaining how he became involved in peace and reconciliation work. Um, my mother uh, died for a, a number of years, was about seven, year, seven years ago, and I picked up one of her letters that she had written to my father, who was in um, Italy at the time. That was before I was born and she was writing about this baby who she was carrying and she was her hope was that maybe this baby would be a um, person of peace especially coming out of this world war and that extraordinary um, revelation uh, for her was a revelation for me because always through my life I've, I've sought for peace um, not because I just want folk not to argue, but try to find a way through by which we can continue a useful um, relationship. And uh, so um, the watershed for me was, well, my background is through engineering. It went into farming and youth work. I was eight years on the road as a gospel band um, then I took up um, training for the Anglican ministry in Nottingham and uh, so for 18 years I was uh, became a parish priest after being a curate um, but in 97 my first wife died and that was a watershed for me and my sister who was living in uh, the centre of Ireland in Athlone just rang up one day and said why not come over for a holiday you might not return and so that's actually what happened. So I lived with them for a little while. And during that time, I met Katie on a peace conference. And Katie is now my wife, and we have a little girl, Esther, age 12. 
but um, Katie was involved in peace and reconciliation world work. And my being English, really, and coming over to Ireland, I actually knew nothing about the Irish um, story, really, except for the propaganda that the BBC had given me, you know, mm -hmm. delightfully over the, over the years. And what I discovered is that when facilitating um, uh, different groups to uh, enable them to talk about their history, I didn't need to know anything. And in fact, I was in a, a very powerful place of not knowing anything. So my opening gambit was, here's John who knows nothing, please teach me. Mm -hmm. And it was fascinating through all the different groups from Catholic to Protestant, Unionism, Republican and so on. All these different people telling me their story and that gave me an education to what was going on at grassroots in, uh, in the Republic of Ireland and in Northern Ireland and so on. Um, that these stories actually had a, a resonance of authenticity, whereas what comes through the news is really very selective mm -hmm. and usually has a political slant to it, which I was always very... Um, about. So are you south of the border down in Athlone running these groups in the moment or are they taking place in the north? The, my work didn't actually start south of the I'd moved to the north. Oh okay by, sorry. By right. I'd actually started right. um, because it was then that um, the Glencree Centre of Peace and Reconciliation asked us both to do a piece of work called the Churches Programme and the Churches Programme was um, getting together people who had something to say about church. That didn't mean that they had to be churchgoers, but everybody has something to say about church. And that's what we were asked to do. So we would be able to bring Catholics and Protestants and Presbyterians and all shades together and people who didn't aspire to any faith, just to bring them together in the same room because we both, where well, we all felt that sectarianism is actually born out of religion. That's, that's its, its, its uh, seedbed. And uh, so we, we don't bang people over the head with that, but it is a place to start. And so um, with the Glencree Centre of Peace and Reconciliation backing, um, we uh, started field work along the border. Now the border in uh, Northern and the Republic of Ireland um, is uh, 250 miles long, so it's quite a long space. And we would hold meetings of uh, groups that were either side, because it often is at the border where the, the greatest pain is. Mm -hmm. And so we would um, build up over uh, the period of years, you know, that those contacts and the trust between the peoples as we were going. There were three of us who actually worked the whole of that border. So what does this look like when you had the meeting? Is it people sat around in a circle, Protestant, Catholic, Protestant, Catholic? Well, what's the sort of format? Yeah. Um, we would go out from one church to another to say, would you be interested in the conversation? So that, that's all it is, without any outcome uh, at all, just to um, uh, speak 
to another group, maybe another type of church or a different body of people, and would they be interested? So there was that sort of research that had to be done. And slowly but surely we build up the contacts. Um, these, the, the main work that Katie and I had to do was to design the question. Um, nobody wants answers and there's no answers to the Irish question at all. But the, um, a good question has to be personal, it has to be um, community-based and it has to be ambiguous. So if I wanted to give you uh, an example of that, I could say, Richard, um, what are you doing about what young people say that adults aren't hearing? So it's got, I'm asking you as the personal, young people is the corporate mm -hmm. and the questions they're asking um, that our adults aren't hearing, what are they? So there's no answer to that, but it's a very good way to get a conversation going. So a lot of what we would um, do is spend time finding the right question for that group and then just simply asking them okay yeah when we were talking yesterday you mentioned now let me get this right you asked people to think about what question they would want to be asked by someone on the other side yes so if we had say a catholic group and a, a protestant group together i might ask uh, separate the two groups and just ask one group what question would you like the other group to ask you and why is that question important to you? So they would both be doing that and they would be saying now I would like to ask them to ask me about the Immaculate Conception or something. Why is that important? It's why not obviously you... important to you know the yeah. first glance right so, yeah, what, so what, what would they come up with? Yes so what, what, why, why would that be important to them? So the moment they start asking why that would be important they realize that actually it wasn't a very important question <laughs> so they would find another question mm -hmm. and slowly but surely um, it used to shake down to some fairly fundamental and really important questions like um, how can we share our education with each other because we're all concerned about children's education. Mm -hmm. So that was important. And how do we actually live in harmony or how do we live with each other's history? And you know, these sort of things started coming up rather than some doctrinal stuff. Which, you know, was... Okay. And what kind of people would walk through the door into these things? And what I'm asking here is sometimes the kind of criticism of interfaith movements is the end of it. I've heard them described as liberal cocktail parties, right? Where you, you, they, they tend to attract people who are very open to reconciliation and seeing the other's point of view to begin with. Um, so I imagine those people did come, but did you have people also who were more entrenched in their views and kind of there sort of slightly unwillingly, they thought it's a good idea, but they didn't expect to get much out of it. And what, what kind of people would it attract? Yes, um, church people. <laughs> Um, and um, also uh, we ran another group which is slightly out of it with young people and then we put them all together and that made a very interesting mix 
because the young people had a very fresh way of actually speaking that was important that the older folk would be able to hear. But again, um, there were just a huge variety of people. There were folk who were, uh, um, I know a, a number of people who were from the paramilitary, uh, people who had uh, been, um, uh, had a lot of loved ones and were part of the victims support groups and mm -hmm. so on. Um, everybody knew somebody who had, who had, I mean, there were three and a half thousand people who had killed uh, over the years uh, there. And I mean, we just celebrated the, the 20th anniversary of the Omer bombing which was the biggest atrocity in the whole of the Troubles. Uh, 29 people died and two of the, the, the uh, and the, uh, 30 and 31 were two uh, twins that weren't born. So that was in there. There were also um, a, a group of uh, kids who were Spanish. So it cut right across the board and it wasn't actually focused on anybody except just a population. Of, uh, it was a disaster. So everybody knew somebody mm. who, or had a friend who had um, lost somebody. Everybody heard the explosion. So if that was the, 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 the minimum thing, that has affected you. Because in your imagination, you had probably seen all sorts of stuff on television anyway. And that would uh, infect, it would infect the narrative of the community. Mm. And that, I think, is very important because communities do have a narrative that goes right back into ancestry and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah and that, that's a striking thing about the north of Ireland. I've been there quite a lot over the years and everyone has a story which would be totally exceptional if they lived anywhere else. Yeah, okay? yeah. But there it's normal. Everyone's got a story like that of being involved in or close to um, some incident of incredible violence or having lost people there but okay so when you say people from paramilitary groups came along that's pretty extreme on the spectrum i mm. would think okay so what kind of changes in perspective did you see um through the work did you see people who were quite entrenched to begin with opening up to i don't know a more reconciliatory point of view or seeing the other's perspective? Um, yes and no. Um, many people, it was just exactly the forum that they'd always looked for. Uh, I mean, one of the things that Katie and I are really hot on is creating a safe space by which people could make unsafe statements. So often in churches or whatever, everybody's wanting a nice safe space where we can be all cosy. This is very different. So you could have a, um, a conversation where there was quite a lot of anger. But part of the skill of the facilitators in that was to be able to um, contain or hold that and allow that to happen without it getting completely out of, <laughs> out of hand. And in order to, we'd have a number of guidelines which we'd give people right at the beginning so this is how the conversation works. Mm -hmm. um, somebody, somebody is allowed to speak then, and the uh, facilitator can interrupt. So that's one of the things that they know that. So you won't be able to speak for the next hour. <laughs> so we won't allow that. 
but we'll ask you to speak um, and everybody else to be there to listen and give the respect to that. That's how that person sees their life mm -hmm. and their context and their situation and, and their pain or, or joys. And when that's been said, then somebody else can speak. And it was a facilitator's um, skills of actually being able to bring that into some useful um, uh, conclusion or form. Um, what we discovered is that people um, went out glad to have spoken. And I think if I'm in a situation where folk can say, I have been listened to respectfully and that that is healing you know so often people are jabbering over you or you know swilling pints down and, and not listening mm -hmm. how do i know that i've been heard by you and one of the ways that uh, we really worked at is can i um, i will only be heard if somebody if um is speaking into my listening if i can uh, know how you're listening to me then i can change my language or redirect my language in a way that you will understand but if i'm just coming out with my own story and wrote which i've done a thousand times you'll be bored and so will i <laughs> and, and it just doesn't move on so part of the facilitation work was actually how will this group hear the other group and in the respect and the, the silence often that there was um, people suddenly discovered that they were able to shift out of their normal rote story which not only they knew but the other side knew as mm. well so everybody knew each other's story that wasn't the problem was how do we actually move the action forward into a new conversation and when that starts then there's some very interesting things start to happen and you start finding friendships being uh, happening and it's just tentative stuff but um yes that's how how it seemed to develop i just want to examine that a little more there what does that look like that shift from me telling you my typical story mm -hmm. to what you're aiming to get is it a sense of more authenticity coming from me in expression I'm not expecting anything from you um, all I'm doing is just probably holding up a mirror so that you can actually tell your story and hear your own story from your own lips that's the best I think I could do everything is it would be a prescription that this is what I want you to go where I want you to go or what I want you to do and I want you to throw your arms around that paramilitary and say I mm. forgive you uh, that's nonsensical that doesn't work and uh, if it did then I would be quite skeptical of it because mm. actually the forgiveness of say your wife being killed or whatever that's the last thing on, on the agenda mm. so I would um, what I would what I have seen is people uh, weeping I've seen men embrace each other um, uh, people at the end of say a, a weekend's meeting standing up and giving testimony of how they have been changed and their attitudes have been changed
I have seen people stand up and walk out in fury. Mm -hmm. um, that's okay too. It, you know, part of the guidelines is that if you don't want to be in the room, that's fine. And don't anybody chase after them either. <laughs> Allow that to happen. And I think that's to do with giving people respect for their yes and their no. If, if somebody can't say no, then actually their yes means nothing. And mm. vice versa. If I always have to say no to something, then what does the yes mean? So those sort of things are there. And if you dig down deeper, um, you will find that within the families uh, of father and children and grandchildren, that there is a big no going on there, that you are not allowed to meet up with little Jimmy down the road or Paul or William <laughs> or whatever. Um, you're not allowed to meet them. And there's that sort of family thing there as well. And one of the things we've always wanted to do is to actually do work with families so that families can really talk to each other about the way that their language has been closed down because of the troubles. Mm -hmm. And you can see the dangers that people faced and wanted to overcome, but the cost of doing that uh, could be your life. So it has to be very, very uh, sensitively and carefully um, administered and listened to and so on. And take it very slowly. You know, this, the, the troubles didn't happen yesterday and could be solved today. They, they go back to Strongbow, which is <laughs> sort of 800 years ago, whatever it is. You know, it's, uh, that sort of stuff. Yeah. So as I, I said at the start, Northern Ireland is like a microcosm for the kind of division you see everywhere, but a more intense one where it's descended into violence. Do you see a role for these kind of groups in areas where you don't have that level of intensity? Um, for example, with Brexit in the UK, we seem to have a situation where one half of the country is utterly incapable of understanding the other and vice versa. Okay, and they're talking from a very different narrative, whereas what the European Union means to people. They're talking about two different things. It's either this vision of a future of everyone coming together and cooperating and overcoming the past wars and violence of Europe, or it's a, an oligarchical control system that's going to be very removed from the people and be there to pass money on to corporations. Um, so there's these two very different visions there. You could say the same thing with Mr. Trump. In America, whether he's a liberator who's going to cut back government and simplify the tax code and return America to what it was 50 years ago, or a, a narcissist who uh, has no concern whatsoever for the, the poor and downtrodden of the earth. And there's this total polarization in that. But we only seem to move to doing these kind of groups when it's something like Israel-Palestine or the north of Ireland, where things have actually descended into chaos. Do you see a wider role for this kind of facilitated dialogue? Well, the the work that the Glencree Centre of Peace and Reconciliation, they're based just south of Dublin, but they um, actually do facilitation work uh, around the world. And part of the rationale was, is that because we were able to do quite a lot of work actually in uh, the Northern Ireland 
uh, and through with the troubles and, and actually working um, that sort of facilitation that actually built up the skills of those folk in Northern Ireland to be able to facilitate other, mm. other folk. And the great thing about it is that if somebody from Northern Ireland comes into Palestine and, and talks to folk there, in a sense, they have no axe to grind other yeah. than just we'd like to see you talk to each other. Mm. And there's no political stuff to it. Part of the problems uh, with much of the uh, uh, like the Brexit stuff um, is that um, there's too much politics and uh, horse trading going on behind the scene and it's not transparent. What Katie and I were involved with, and so the Glen Cree Centre of Peace and Reconciliation, is that they were non-political. And although we did get money from the, the state and so on, we actually had the freedom to draw together who we wished. And yes, people could talk about politics, but it wasn't with any back story to try and make you toe the line or whatever mm -hmm. and uh, be at peace with your neighbor. If you couldn't be at peace with your neighbor, fine, but at least you're aware of it. And I think if you are aware of um, your neighbor, then you're halfway there. Thank you very much for that, John. Is there anything else you'd like to add? No, there? that's probably... Uh... <laughs> okay, thank you. I'll ask a bonus question, actually, which you might slip bonus in question. afterwards. Yeah, because it's things that don't necessarily fall into the yeah yeah the, um, the, the like, maybe I've done it right. But actually, sometimes you get like, okay, we've had a flow, we've come to the conclusion. But this, I'd actually like to ask this question. It sort of refers to what you said about the BBC, okay, presenting a narrative. Mm. And when I've listened to these kind of groups in um, Palestine, what becomes clear is that. There's a very different factual narrative held between Israelis and Palestinians. So Palestinians, the origin of this problem starts with the Nakaba, right, where, where 800,000 of them were driven from their homes by Israeli tanks. Yeah. And there were atrocities committed, there were mass rapes, there were people put up against wars and shot, and Palestinians put up against wars and shot. The Israelis don't necessarily know about this, okay, and they don't necessarily think it happened. They have a different account. Mm. And I think history is maybe has concluded on one side or the other. The Palestinian account is objectively more accurate. I would say at this point, you've had Israeli historians concede this, and maybe the point of argument is about the righteousness of coming in and taking that land, whether it was um, justified or not. But for the average Israeli citizen, when they hear Palestinians tell them about what happened to their parents, their grandparents, they're sitting there thinking, is this something that they've made up mm. to try and steal a bit of land from us? Okay. Or to justify their actions now. And I, I can understand if you've never been exposed to that narrative, that that's, that's your thought. And I wonder how that comes across or does it come across in the North that you have people speaking from, and they've got a very different factual narrative in mind because I think that's something that we it often evokes a sense of exasperation um in the sense that well if people don't share the same facts and you see this said a lot in America now okay with Donald Trump coming out with terms like alternative facts and people laugh about it and um say look we, as a society we have to agree on the factual narrative and then we can agree on what to do about it but 
I think um, the concept of alternative facts is it's not some new thing. Okay, people have always had different ways of seeing the world, and that means interpreting it differently and coming up with different facts. It's just Donald Trump has come up with a name for it, and people laugh at Donald Trump. Um, I'm not saying his use of it is particularly the most, you know, whatever. But um, how do you encounter that kind of thing when people are, are coming in and saying that, you know, with a different kind of historical account of what happened? Did, did that occur? I think everybody has a different historical take um, because we only understand the world in the context of our own lives. And depending on what has actually happened, um, to us, then we will create the mythology around it. And we will make sure that our neighbours know that mythology, but it doesn't go very much further than that. Part of the, the work, I think, of the facilitation was to try and bring down, say, well, okay, this happened. Can you see it any, any other way? And um, the person say, no, that's exactly what happened. I said, anybody else was there when this happened? Um, can you shed light on, on this, what would be a factual thing? Um, I think there was research done on um, how um, accidents were seen. And depending where you were on the road or pavement, you gave a, a, a different account Oh, it was that person's fault, but actually someone else can see it slightly mm. different. That's just a, a simple illustration of actually something far deeper, which actually includes um, the family or the tribal narrative um, and uh, uh, all the constraints that that has on the freedom of speech, really. Um, so I don't know whether that, that's answering yeah. Um, yeah. that. I, I didn't see um, if we if we did see what you're you're talking about uh, different uh, factual or fake news or whatever, we would immediately see that as a possibility of of discussion. That would be right. absolute gold dust. Great, you see it that way. You see it differently. Let's explore that. And when Katie and I started off, we would not know where we were going to go. We had no, all, all our uh, concerns were is that actually we wouldn't have killed each other by the end of the, uh, of the, uh, uh, the event. That actually somehow people had had a chance to listen, whatever the story was. That's all food to the, to the narrative and so on. Yeah. Okay, I'll do another bonus question. Yeah. Of, do you have any sense of what impact this had when people left the groups and went back to their own communities, both on an individual level, but also, I don't know how many people you did this work with, but not just you, there's other people doing it. Certainly, yeah. What do you feel, I don't know, it's a very hard thing to quantify, but what, what do you feel the kind of, the impact was of? I, I wouldn't know. But I tell you one thing, I've been a, um, a creative writing uh, facilitator for a trust called the Pushkin Trust. Mm -hmm. And right in the middle of the troubles, the, um, the Pushkin 
uh, trust came out of the um, the Duchess of Abercorn, who was uh, related to Alexander Pushkin, uh, that she lives in a, a very nice manner and, and so on. And her daughter, who was very young then, went to her one day and said, um, all these children in Belfast are just being blown to bits and throwing rocks and so on. And here we are sitting amongst the beauty of, of uh, Newton Stewart and County Tyrone, 80 miles away from mm. Belfast. Isn't there something we can do? And so the Duchess of Abercorn uh, started to think about this and she started this Pushkin Trust where she got uh, children, uh, school, she went into the schools or got contacts with the schools uh, of, of north and the south of the border, Catholic, Protestant, you know, right across the, the mix and invited maybe four schools uh, for a day to come together and you, you might have the sort of the top end of the primary schools, uh, as it were, to come together to experience the beauty of her estate. And on that estate, they would do environmental walks. That would maybe in the morning or the afternoon. The other part of the program was that the children might do something to do with creative writing. They might do artwork, they might do music or something. And so they, I was part of the facilitation there doing drama and music and, uh, and creative writing. And I've done that for 10, 12, 15 years now. Uh, each year they'd have these Pushkin days. So her work was to try and get education across the board and kids discovering that actually, you know, if they were Protestant, Catholic didn't have two heads, mm. they had three, you know. Or, or that's a good point to make about the North, that yeah. people can live right next to each other and never meet each other on different estates. Exactly, so, yes. So she was able to do that and bring them together. Um, and through that basic education, um, not only were they being brought together, but the teachers were as well, because mm -hmm. the teachers had to be there and they had to be part of the programme. And it was just, it's just been, well, I think we just celebrated nearly the 30th year the Pushkin has been going. How many children do they have going through a year? Well over a thousand. Mm. Now that year in year on is absolutely brilliant. And that goes on underneath. What has just started happening is children who first came 30 years ago are coming back as facilitators mm. and expressing what, how their lives were totally and utterly changed by the Pushkin program. And the Pushkin program was not prescriptive in any way. We never say, right, this is what we want you to learn. But what would you like to learn about the environment? And the kids would start talking and inquiring and so on, and suddenly find that all the children were interested in that tree rather than somehow the color, the school uniform they were wearing or whatever. Mm. That was not an issue. And so out of that has come um, great change. And, um, and, the, and the teachers have teachers' days as well, by which we can actually um, rethink the way we teach. I mean, the word education means to draw forth. Yeah. It doesn't mean to stuff in. And so often we're up to here in stats, trying to get the children to 
you know, comply with what the government want. But what where we start is that actually you, the child has it all, has the wisdom there. All we have to do is facilitate them and bring it forth. And that is a different way of actually looking at education. And it's something I think teachers originally um, felt, but then suddenly the program and the institution has squashed that yeah. out. Beaten out of them by the exactly. state education system. And, uh, and then the whole thing comes uh, uh, on this sort of wheel, which they can't break out of. And so it's been an absolute delight for them to come to be facilitated into a, a completely new thing and just remember what it was when they first yeah, had the vision of teaching. Wonderful that the Trust has that underpinning yeah. philosophy to it. Yeah, yes. It's just delightful. Thank you. Can I ask a bonus, bonus, bonus yeah, question? Yeah. <laughs> I'm just interested in all, all that rich, richness of your work. How do you see a link between peace in the outer world and an inner peace? Hmm. Pass. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. No, yeah, Coffee? No, um, I think we get to know who we are by what other people tell or say to us. We, we do get a, a sense of who I am by how you react to me. And um, if everybody is shouting at me, then I get a, a sense that I'm, I'm not a very nice person or something, you know. So what I've found in, in the whole process or the education that I received through the peace and reconciliation work is I didn't give anything into that. Everybody gave it to me that actually I, when I first came to Northern Ireland, I was petrified. I thought I was going to be blown up as well. And, mm. But these people actually brought me peace to say, we've lived here, we know the problems, you're safe with us. And so that gave me, an, that was a gift given to me as I sought to give them my, uh, my ignorance, really. Yeah, <laughs> so, amazing. Yeah, so that, that's how I think it worked. Yeah. And... Um, some people say, well, would you go back to England again? I said, no, this is my home. I, 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 the resonance of the place is so deep within me that I, I wouldn't. I remember standing on uh, Athlone Bridge in, in the, where the Shannon goes past, standing there and saying, this is my home. I, I wouldn't want to be anywhere else. And uh, that's... People have to put up with that. <laughs> this is the, the paradox of the north of Ireland for me. I'm not the only one that's observed this. It's the nicest place I've ever been. Yeah. Friendliest place I've ever been. Walking around Belfast. You can't get a map out without someone coming and showing you where you want to go. That's normal, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yes. And that's the side that's not obvious if you don't go there, you know. Yes, yes. No, and... Um... I mean, we can talk about the troubles, but the joys uh, that have spawned out of it is amazing. Mm. Um, I mean, it's just just wonderful to to meet the people who have got excuse to be sad about their lives, actually finding mm. joy there. And when my first wife Roz died, somebody sent me a letter, which said it's hard. To keep joy out of your life forever 
and that stayed with me like a mantra mm -hmm. and that's perfect it's hard to keep it out well thank you for listening everyone john mentioned the pushkin trust and i shall link to the website for that below if you enjoyed this podcast please do subscribe as i'll be doing similar themes in the future and also john himself will be coming back on to talk about the series of novels he's written now here's some Danny Boy to play us out. Is you.